0: brought to you by Penguin.
1: So I actually have like six peanut bird feeders in the garden, and I'm having a kind of ongoing war with the rats from the railway line. They get up into the peanut feeder, so I'm tying it in various weird places with Clothesline I didn't know
2: about this war.
1: Yeah, another night <laughs> I was, I was coming back from my office at the end of the garden and I was coming back from it. And I thought, it's weird, the bird feeder is swinging. I looked up and there's two massive rats hanging from the peanut Ugh. bird feeder.
3: Hello, I'm Nihal Arthanaika and this is the award winning Penguin podcast where authors lift the lid on their creative process by telling us about objects that inspire them. In this first of two special compilation episodes, we're looking back at some of the standout moments from 2021. Nick Laird and Zadie Smith tell us about sneaky rats and the noise colour spectrum. Adam Kay reveals that the best way to avoid being distracted by social media is to write in the middle of the night when everyone on Twitter is asleep. Ashley Audrain discusses the dichotomy of motherhood in song form. Neil McGregor shows us what a rhino doesn't actually look like. Sean Fay explains how shared culture brings us together and Barack Obama rummages for books in a bin at a jumble sale. So strap in for some of this year's highlights from the Penguin podcast. In February, author, art historian and former director of the British Museum, Neil McGregor joined me and brought along an intriguing object all the way from 16th century Germany.
0: Yes, um... This is the very famous uh, woodcut by uh, Albert Dürer of a rhinoceros. And the rhinoceros is not found in Europe. Um, The great moment of the Portuguese expansion, the trade expansion to Asia at the end of the 15th century, around 1500, meant that, for the first time, ships were going directly all the way around the Cape of Good Hope from India to Europe. And the Portuguese established a settlement on the west coast of India and the local governor is given by the Sultan of Gujarat... A present of a rhinoceros (laughs) uh, as the Portuguese start their empire. Now, it's a very tricky present to be given. Yeah,
3: exactly. I was (laughs) wondering. It's very difficult to wrap, I can imagine.
0: What would you do if you were given a rhinoceros? (laughs) um, uh, Which is a great, prestigious thing, terrifying animal. And the governor of the... Portuguese colony decides that the only thing to do, as with lots of uh, awkward presents, is you pass it on and give it as a present to somebody else. So he decides to send it to the king of Portugal. And this rhinoceros (laughs) is, as I say, weighs several tonnes, is put on a boat in the west of India and sent to sail to Europe, um, which takes, of course, several months. It arrives eventually in Lisbon, And it causes a sensation. Nobody in Europe has seen a rhinoceros since the Roman Empire. They knew from the Roman writers that rhinoceroses existed uh, because the Romans used to bring them to to the circuses, but they hadn't seen one. And this becomes an amazing sensation in Europe, a great European celebrity. And the King of Portugal, who's also wondering what what is going to do with the rhinoceros, (laughs) decides that he'll give it away again and he'll give it to the Pope. And so it gets on the boat again, and on the way, it sinks. So in terms of creating a celebrity myth, it's absolutely ideal. This enormously famous thing has arrived, it's been seen, and then it disappears. And Dürer in Nuremberg, which is just beginning to become the great centre of the European printmaking industry, and Dürer's right at the top of this, he decides he's got to make an image of this celebrity. But, of course, he's never seen it. People have uh, written about it, they've described it. And he, from the little sketches he's got, the the information, he invents a rhinoceros. And his invention of a rhinoceros is an amazingly powerful image. It's roughly the shape of a rhinoceros, but it looks as though it's wearing armour. It's terrifyingly framed, so that it's pushing against the frame. You get a sense of a very powerful, huge object. And this image, he can now reproduce with woodblocks in thousands and thousands and thousands of copies and spread them across Europe. And this becomes Europe's image of the rhinoceros. Why I think this is so interesting is because it shows that we need to have an image of the things we've heard about that we've never seen. And it's a real human need. Dürer makes the image of the thing that people had heard about. And it's not, of course, an accurate one. It's a fantasy. But it's so powerful as a fantasy that it remains the way Europeans think about the rhinoceros, Um, really, until the 20th century. It was still in German school textbooks uh, in the 19th century as an illustration of a rhinoceros. And the whole of Europe knows this, because this is also the moment when you can, for the first time, really disseminate, publish information. So, if you like, this is a kind of fake news... (laughs) it's 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 not a real rhinoceros, but it gives a very good impression of the power and the, the the threatening nature of a rhinoceros and this image europe's glimpse of another world of a world it's just beginning to trade with and is be, then going on to exploit in the most extraordinarily brutal way, stands right at the front of Europe's relationship with the world. So you have the beginning of a European imagining, and that's why this object, I think, is so important, because that is now going to become, for the rest of the world, with the consequences we know, one of the driving changes for humanity, how Europe thinks about the rest of the world, how it goes out and what it brings back. This image is really the beginning of that. And it turns out that,
3: much as it was in family Zoom calls up and down the land, working through a pandemic was a hot topic on the pod this year. In March, Izzy Sutte spoke to someone whose first book topped the Sunday Times bestseller list for over a year. His name? Adam Kay. Adam's book for children, Kay's Anatomy, illustrated by Henry Packer, was published in May, and he and Izzy compared notes on how to keep oneself motivated in the face of distraction.
4: Uh, when the pandemic first hit, I was kind of like, "Okay, I'll have loads of time to work now. I won't have any distractions." Then I remembered that I have two kids. Um, one oh, of them. No, COVID. then. Ugh. Yeah, I, yeah, just remembered, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, I and then I realised that we'd all have to be in the whole time. So it's a bit, perhaps a bit different from me. But have you found generally that your creativity has been affected by COVID? Not
5: hugely. My baseline anxiety. Is obviously higher, and when that hits a certain level, it makes it very different to you know to knuckle down and, and and do some work. But I've always worked from home, apart from you know when I'm on stage somewhere. And this is working from home. And um, James has always worked from home. We're used to spending time together in the house. It's been all right. I've been reasonably productive. Um, I write generally quite late at night.
4: Is that because less people are contacting you? I always find in the evening I'm not getting as many emails, so it's
5: Exactly. And it's not so much people contacting me, it's me finding distraction. Yeah. It's much harder to to get lost in, in Twitter for three hours um when it's two AM and no one's posting. Yes. So I just need to be protected from myself and, and that happens best at that happens best at night.
4: You people who kind of forgets time and forgets there's food and drink and just writes and writes and goes, oh, I haven't eaten all day. Oh, or no, are you I like wish me? I was one
5: of those people. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, those people. No, I've, I have to have some kind of deadline or um, word count or I have to have something to hit and I'm counting it down, sort of you know, keystroke by keystroke until I get there. I use a programme called uh, Scrivener. I mean, there's loads of different, you know, ways of sort of organising your writing. I, I find it quite um, quite easy to use. But one of its functions is it's got, it can do like a sort of a countdown for your day's words. And it does as this sort of bar that goes across, a progress bar. Oh, and it starts off, you know, sort of panic button red. And it goes uh, all the way down to, to, to traffic light green and um, and through, a, you know, a trillion gradations. And that, that sort of... I have to slightly gamify it. I can't get lost in my writing. I don't think I've ever once <laughs> looked up from my laptop and not known how many words I've done.
4: I'm exactly the same. I, I have to have a deadline and I have to... When I was writing my... I've just written a novel when I was writing that I had to do a thousand words a day and I got very anal about it and kind of wouldn't stop if I'd done 999 and and then after a bit I was like come on you've essentially done a thousand but I yeah I really like and then once I remember I wrote this thing with Josie Long years and years ago just a pilot that didn't ever get picked up but we used to write in this office every day and I couldn't start until we'd worked out what we were going to have for lunch and I was like oh this is interesting I I have to know what time we're going to have lunch and what it is before I can actually begin. But that was almost like me creating my own reward, I suppose, which is essentially what you're doing by going along the progress bar.
5: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I'm also uh, a thousand words a day. Um, So this is advice stolen from Jane Goldman, the the wonderful um, uh, scriptwriter. Yeah. And uh, when I was sort of in a sort of how do I approach this. Um, with a huge project she said a thousand words a day and you're not allowed to look back at anything else you've done beforehand so you move on to the next day because otherwise you get into this sort of you get a really good first third of your project, yes, and you just endlessly improve that and never manage to move forward. That's so I so do my thousand true. words and I sort of and I've got another separate document where I scroll down things that have occurred to me that I need to change about other stuff that you know i I've, I've written a, a thing that's got a knock on effect that means I need to change something before i just I approach that right at the end when I do my my edits, and that means that you can reach the end of a project and 1,000 words a day is a nice, achievable goal. That number will be different for for everyone. I started trying 1,500, but sort of one in three, one in four days, I didn't hit it, and then you just feel useless because actually it's not – it isn't that much when you think about it. So you just need to have a goal that you can definitely – Hits. Yes, it needs
4: to, it needs to stretch you a tiny bit on the days on the harder days, doesn't it? But not be so much of a challenge that you can't do it.
5: Exactly. And yeah. And also, this is this is for someone who's got the luxury of not having other stuff to do or to to write or you know, alongside childcare or a day job and things like that. A thousand words could be an impossible goal, so it might be five hundred words or three hundred words, but. You know, a 1,000 words a day means that, in theory, you can do the first draft of, you know, a normal-sized novel in two to three months. Yeah. And then and 500
3: words a day, it's six months. So even at relatively small quantities, it really it magically adds up. Canadian author Ashley O'Drain's debut novel, The Push, a psychological drama told through the lens of motherhood and set against a background of postpartum depression, was released in January to rave reviews and went on to become an international bestseller, appearing in both the New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller lists. Ashley explained how the song The Mother by Brandy Carlisle inspired her writing. Tell us about how this inspired the writing of your first novel.
6: Yeah, I think um, it's a song that Brandy wrote after having her first daughter. It has such a brilliant opening line, and the opening line of that song is, "Welcome to the End of being alone inside your mind." And Brandy Carlisle has said of this, um, so I'll quote her here, you know to some this sounds like the realization of their most sacred dreams, you know, true companionship. But for some, this sacrifice is too much to bear and requires its own brand of radical forgiveness. For the most part, and for me, it's equal measures of both. I am not just a mother, but it's all that I am. And I just, I love the way that this song and that explanation and that line of the song sort of works through that idea. Um, you know, she in the song, she writes through the things that motherhood take from her and how much she resents that. But there's a very, you know, there's such tenderness to this as well, tenderness to the song and the lyrics that she writes And I love my daughter, you know, she's only three, but she's always loved this song. And she makes me, you know, dance around the kitchen with her when we play it. And she changed, she makes me change the daughter's name in the song, which is Evangeline to her, her name, which is Waverly. Um, You know, I turn to this song sometimes when I just need to get in the mood to write, you know, whether it's whether it was the push, whether it's my next book, I sometimes I just like to play it to get in a certain mood.
3: How difficult was it for you to write this book? Is it going into the darkest deepest recesses of your soul or is it pent up emotions that you were allowed to express or you allowed yourself finally to express so it just poured out
6: you know I didn't find it difficult to write about what I'm writing about in the push I really didn't and I I think it was just the way that I was seeing things you know it was just what I I felt like I was just writing the truth in a lot of ways. And even though, you know, Blythe's story goes to much darker places than I've ever experienced, thankfully, and hopefully never will. Even, I think, putting myself in the shoes of her when she's going through those experiences, you know, was not as difficult as I think some people would expect it to be or some people have assumed. And I think it's because... For me, it was exploring fear. Like a lot of this book was really writing through fear, through my greatest fears, through most of our greatest fears as parents. And there is something, I think for me, a little cathartic, you know, about exploring that on the page. You are in control of that scene. You are in control of the emotions. You are in control of the next sentence you write. I am not a psychologist, but I'm sure a psychologist would have something to say about that experience. But, you know, I find some of the the harder, you know, the darker parts of this book you know, harder to read, I think, than they were to ever write.
3: Oh, that's okay. That's interesting. So, how do you maintain emotional distance while pouring emotion into a book, mm. or is that possible to do?
6: I am able to sort of compartmentalize that from the emotions that I really feel in my day to day life. Somehow, and I'm sort of experiencing that a bit with writing my second book now. I think a lot of it is just trying to have empathy for what that would be like. And I, just, I don't know, I, I am able to walk away from my laptop and leave it there. I mean, it's, you know, one thing is that, um, and I don't know if this would make a difference. I would be curious to hear what, writer, what writers would say about this, but I really don't like to be at home when I'm writing and maybe that is a response to exactly what we're talking about i really like to be out of my house i like to be at a coffee shop or at a you know library or right now that obviously is very difficult to do but the, you know the whole time i wrote the push um you know i would physically you know leave my children here and go and write and and then i would be able to ju- it's almost like it just didn't exist here as a part of my life with my family like that writing life and those that emotion and those ideas
3: in april just as we were coming to the end of Lockdown 2.0, I spoke to literary power couple Nick Laird and Zadie Smith about their new children's book, Weirdo, which stars a judo suit-wearing hamster. As the nation discovered a new favourite pastime of working from home, Nick told us about some of the things he can see from his window.
1: So I chose a peanut bird feeder. I actually have like six peanut bird feeders in the garden. We, we live just off on uh, Wilson Lane. So it's it's pretty um, urban area, but uh, our terraced house is like a long, thin garden that runs up to the railway track, so it's quite a lot of wildlife around. Weirdly, there's foxes and all different kinds of birds, and I hang there. I'm having a kind of ongoing war with the rats from the railway line, but they get up into the peanut feeder, so I'm tying it in various weird places with clothesline. Um, I didn't know about this war. Yeah, the other night <laughs> it's I know. good to walking, hear about it on this. I was podcast. coming back from my I have an office <laughs> have an office at the end of the garden, and I was coming back from it. and I thought it's weird. The bird feeder is swinging, and I looked up and there's two massive rats hanging from the peanut oh. bird feeder. Um, so anyway, the birds come every day, and uh, there's like some of them turn up. One of them is a little blue tit who's got still got some of the fuzzy down on top of his head that never molted off, and he's hilarious. He looks like a little tiny punk bird, and so, I don't know, I was thinking, because of weirdo and because of giving these animals sort of internal or interior mm. lives, I was thinking about the peanut, the peanut bird feeder that brings all these uh, different animals. It's kind of a reminder that, you know, humans aren't the centre
3: of the world. Do you um, have to write in silence, both of you?
2: I just listen to... you
3: got one uh, Well, it's actually brown noise. I You know, I
2: prefer brown noise. And I listen to that uh, day and night. At one point when the kids were small, I realised you listen to it all day while you work. You listen to it so that they'll go to sleep. Like, my whole life is yeah, just... We
1: play, when we live, we've been in New York for ten years and it's so noisy in our apartment in, in NYU's building yeah. down in Greenwich Village. We just play it all the time. So I
2: live in this denuded soundscape of... Yeah. Day and night. It's lovely. Um, I just can't... I. I I don't like it sounds so miserable, but to be honest when I'm writing I don't I don't wanna view and I don't wanna hear anything. I wanna ideally just face a wall and it to be quiet. Yeah. Why? <laughs> because I think because because I need to focus on the when I'm writing it's the pages all that exists. I can't really deal with anything else. I just have to be it's... only focused on that. But the good thing about that with laptops or whatever is is that you? I can kind of create that anywhere now. As long as I have the sound in my ears, I can do it on the bus, I can do it anywhere, in a park, anywhere. I just just need to be focused on the Word 97 programme that I still write on.
3: (laughs) Keeping it real. Nick, (laughs) similarly for you then?
1: Yeah, I listen to brown noise too, Um, actually also purple noise. These are real things, green noise sometimes. It's like slightly less harsh. The white noise is the harshest. There's a whole gradation of different coloured noises we've discovered. Are you
3: making this up? No, i Oh, I know the brown know noise is more mellow, like but I didn't know there up. was some it's further true. mellowness <laughs> available be, in
1: purple noise. It's true. I'm gonna have to investigate. Um, but I do also listen to us flick between radio, uh, BBC Radio 6 and BBC Radio 3. Like a wild man. Like a wild
3: man. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to see there's a kind of farrow and ball version of noise that I'd not come yeah. across. Yeah, posh yeah. noise, posh nothing. Posh noise. <laughs> First they turf out the rats, (laughs) then they get their own noise colours in. Their own
2: posh noise. Yeah, so that's what's
3: happening. Uh, The
1: rats, I feel bad about the rats,
3: sorry. I brought the rats
2: here by trying to
1: compost. It turns out you can't really compost in in a London because the rats just descend on your composter and rip it apart. I was putting food out into a composter and it brought all the rats from Bromsbury Station to the house. (laughs) Just mentioning it. And then once I took that food away, they went crazy, and that's when they started doing the bird feeders. So, really, it's your fault, essentially. Sorry, guys. I feel like I brought things down. The
2: gap between a (laughs) guinea pig and a rat is not that far. So, could you try and. Uh, Yeah. I don't like
3: the rat. Another debut author who enjoyed success in 2021 was ex lawyer and journalist Sean Fay. Sean's book, The Transgender Issue An Argument for Justice, was published in September and looks at a range of topics such as bodily autonomy, healthcare, class discrimination and many more through the lens of their effect on transgender and non-binary people. Sean brought an iconic film along as one of her objects, a film which is now imbued with huge significance for a whole community. Let's go to your first object, which is a hugely iconic film.
7: So the film is The Wizard of Oz, 1939 film starring Judy Garland. It was my favourite film as a child. I used to be able to basically mouth the entire, (laughs) the script to the entire film at one point when I was about seven or eight. And so for that reason, it's always been a comforting film, as those films from childhood are. Actually, I'm recording from my teenage bedroom in my mum's house because I'm staying with my mum for a few days. And above it is a print a friend sent me um, during lockdown. And it's actually, it's this artist who puts every frame of an entire motion picture on top of each other. And then it becomes this like amazing kind of like, you know, that colour print. Um, and you wouldn't know. It was, like, I mean, it's something I get to explain to people. Um, not that I really ever have people in my teenage bedroom, but you know. And yeah, and, and I the reason that it's also interesting to me is because I loved that film as a child And that was just because I liked it. I didn't know anything about this. But of course, like so many things that I think LGBTQ people, and I'll say queer people as as the overall, I think a lot of us experience is that when we grow up, we start to realise that these things that we were attracted to as children are actually very iconic things for queer people generally. And and of course, it was only when I got older that I realised, you know, The Wizard of Oz, Summer Over the Rainbow was considered like, you know, for early gay liberation was kind of considered you know, this like anthem about imagining a world where things are better and gay men clearly very much identified with it and trans people did as well. It's almost like a, not an argument because it's not obviously innate, but I think it's one of those fascinating things about how queer culture and subcultures work is that, yeah, often we do how we find each other as people when we grow up, because we often, when we start to realise that we're different, we think we're the only one. And then, yeah, you suddenly realise that, um, there must be things that have appealed to you from a very, very young age. And and so, yeah, so The Wizard of Oz is like that for me. And I think it represents a lot about, like, what I love about camp and gay icons, divas, queer culture. And I picked it because it was a nod to the kind of queer culture that I come from as my kind of background. Even though I've largely become a very boring heterosexual woman post-transition, obviously, I don't, like, I haven't lost that queerness that was in me as a child as a teenager
3: um so you kind of reverse engineered a meaning to it that of course as a seven-year-old you wouldn't recognize necessarily Mm. and that's that's really interesting actually because you know i think about films that mean something to me they don't have that that depth yeah whereas (laughs) you've just explained something that actually joins you to a community of people
7: yeah and, and what's so fascinating about like You know, because I think nowadays there are all these conversations about representation and there are films, obviously, there are more and more films featuring gay people in particular, trans people less so. Although there is like one of the biggest teenage shows in the US now is Euphoria. And one of the main characters in it is uh, Hunter Schaefer, who is a young trans woman who transitioned very young and, and she plays a trans character. So there's a whole group of like cis teenagers who are growing up watching like a teen show with a trans girl played by a trans girl as the main character. And actually her trans is, not you know, she's just a teenager. I mean, I'm only 33, but that's very different from the world I grew up in. And what I find interesting about things like The Wizard of Oz is Somewhere Over the Rainbow is not was not, the person that wrote that song wasn't writing about it being a better world for queer people. But there's something about in a culture where you're kind of erased, maybe, that you find meanings in things in the mainstream. Even like in gay slang like the term friend of Dorothy used to be like a code for like he's gay so it was that central I mean there's even um I mean whether or not it's true but there's one of the um the Stonewall riots which I discuss in the book which was kind of the uprising at the Stonewall Inn in New York which is, is largely considered and it was started by gay people trans people and lesbians one of the origin myths about why that started is it started about the same day that, you know, in the same 24 hours that Judy Garland had died, perhaps emotions were running high as well, because this like huge gay icon had just died in the hours before. Now, whether or not that's true, I couldn't tell you because it sounds to me like it could be something that like people attribute back. I do think it's just, yeah, it's interesting about how much she and that film play this role in queer culture. And so that's why I picked it. And, and, and yeah, and it played a huge role in my life, long before I would have known anything about my own identity or identified as LGBTQ.
3: Over the last couple of years, Marcus Rashford has become a national hero. If it wasn't enough to be a superb sportsman, Marcus's campaigning on child food poverty, forcing a government U-turn early on in lockdown, has cemented his place in the hearts of the nation. In May, June Sarpong interviewed Marcus alongside someone else you might have heard of, Barack Obama, about the evolution of their respective passions for literature.
8: I love the story that, that you talk about where you were rummaging uh, through a bin um, at a sort of church sale and, and found a, a bunch of books, and, and that is what began your passion for reading. Obviously, you're known as one of the world's best orators, and, and part of that comes from what reading and books have done to your life. Can you talk more about that as well?
9: Please? You're right. The, I tell a story about uh, going to a, a church, Rummage sale—that's mm. uh, what they call it in the states. I don't know if they use the same phrase.
8: Yeah, and... we call them like church fates, isn't it, Marcus? It's like a church fate. Yeah, but, <laughs> but it's basically
9: people getting rid of stuff and other people finding uh, treasure in other people's uh, garbage, right? Yeah. Um, and I just saw this big bin of books, and and I, st- I don't know what prompted me, but I started picking them out, and I took a big box full of them home, and they cost five cents each, and. Um, and started diving in in my free time. Now, I have to confess though, and I I hoped I made this clear in the book, my mother is the one who had planted this love of reading or this impulse towards reading in me. I think it had gone uh, dormant for a while.
8: Yeah. But doesn't she wake you up at, like, 5 a.m. to yeah, make exactly. you read right, right. <laughs> Um
9: so So in that sense, you know, uh, you were mentioning that Marcus's mom, uh, you know, deserves to, to write a book as well. I, I think so So often we're fortunate if, if we have parents who inspire that sense of seeking out knowledge and inspiring curiosity... And, you know, parents don't have to themselves be super highly educated to still encourage their children to say, this is important. Um, You know, Michelle, my wife, uh, you know, who obviously ended up becoming a Harvard-educated lawyer and, you know, is, uh, I think, widely acknowledged as... Is
8: a rock star. As a a
9: better speaker than me. uh, (laughs) The... uh, you know, her 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 parents didn't finish college, but they instilled in her that sense that entire worlds are possible in books. Yeah. And that uh, you can grow and discover and make connections that you might not otherwise have made just by the simple act of picking up and opening a book. That's how I ended up being able to get into college despite not always turning in my homework on time was... Uh, <laughs> that 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 curiosity had been planted in me and it, it, it got me through those rockier years until i i'd grown up a little bit
8: fantastic so marcus if i may come to you first of all can i just say how proud we are of you i mean you are a, a national treasure like i'm like we all just love marcus so thank it's a you, it's you. a pleasure uh, to be talking to you today so now You came to reading relatively late, uh, around the age of 17, and and discovering your passion for books then. Can you talk about how that changed your outlook of life and and why you now feel this is so important to offer kids uh, the opportunity to fall in love with books at an earlier age than even you?
10: Yeah, um, you know, for me being in, in sports, I just knew that my life could change very, very quickly. And if I wasn't, like, mature enough or you know, at a certain level in, in my own head, then it makes stuff like fame and, and bits like that even more difficult to, to cope with. So um, yeah, I, I got a book passed to me by a, a psychologist. Um, that was the first book I ever read. And just from them, really, I just started learning that through books, you can grow yourself in whichever way you want. And for me, as the type of person I am, rather than somebody keep telling me to do this and do that, uh, books allowed me to just do it my own way. And I feel like once I learned that about myself, I just never really stopped. I always I always enjoy reading and and it's not necessarily things to do with sports. It can be to do with anything. And as long as I feel like I'm learning and you know, I'm taking my mind somewhere where it's it's not quite been before, I feel like as a person I'm I'm still growing and and developing. The main reason why I started, you know, passing this message on to, to the younger generation is because I want them to feel the same thing that I felt at, a, at an earlier stage, really, and just give them a head start in, in whatever it is that they're, they're gonna end up doing. Um, and yeah, for me, it's, it's a journey that's still ongoing, but I'm enjoying it, I'm enjoying it every day, and I'm, I'm learning new things, so I just fell in love with reading from that, really.
8: Fantastic, and I'm impressed you find the time with, with training as well.
10: <laughs> no, but you, you know what? You you're either training or, or playing games or traveling. But then, other than that, you're usually just resting. You know, you, your your body's gets quite tired throughout the year. Um, and yeah, for me, when you when your body's tired, it's important to keep mentally ticking over.
3: And yeah, um, yeah. You know, for me, that- books is definitely a way of a way of doing. It. And that's it for this episode. Join me next time for more highlights from 2021 when we'll learn exactly how deep Con Igledon goes when he's researching a plot line. Goodbye. So I wanted to
5: write one scene where somebody smothers a character with a pillow and so I asked my wife um, if she would mind attempting to do that to me.